HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Hearst Ranch, grass-fed beef raised on California's Central Coast. Available seasonally at select Whole Foods markets. Learn more at hearstranch.com. So you don't shun the devil with your rock and roll load. Knows that country music's gonna save your soul. The devil runs his groove in them rhythm and blues that sound. It's gonna get you some in the end. Welcome back to the Speakeasy. I'm Southern Teague. And I'm Greg Benson. Hey, buddy. How are you? I'm good. Uh, it was nice to see you in three dimensions the other night, dude. Right, uh, in-person hangout, you and I, uh, at a cute little bar, Warren Bushwick. So weird, so weird. Yeah, uh, it's. I think it's really kind of tragic that you and I live in the same city and we see each other so infrequently, other than, you know, once a week uh, via screens on the speakeasy. Well, I also think part of the problem is that you live in North Brooklyn and I live in South Brooklyn, and public transportation in this borough is such that it will often take less time to drive from my apartment to Philadelphia than to get to where you live on public transportation. Yeah, I mean, Brooklyn, if it broke away from New York, Brooklyn would be the second largest city in America. What would be the first? L.A.? Uh, Yeah, L.A. Okay. Well, we can't let them have that. Yeah. So, yeah, there's some distance between us, but uh, it's still a crime that we don't get to hang out very much. Uh, so thank God we got to see each other at uh, All Night Skate. Pretty cool little bar. Got to uh, have some drinks and, and catch up uh, long overdue. Yeah, I hadn't been there in, I think, probably five years. But like we said on a previous show, it made the um, the James Beard long list. So I was, you know, not I was it was a bit of a, a bit of a surprising inclusion, I think, not necessarily because the quality isn't good, because the quality there is fantastic. I love that little bar. It was just kind of mm-hmm. a, I don't know, the 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 overlap of people who do James Beard Awards and the people who are sort of the target audience of this kind of like very funky 90s nostalgia themed yeah. bars. I don't know. I didn't think the little middle section of the Venn diagram was that big, but apparently I was wrong. What do I know, man? I just work here. Um, right. It was fun to uh, to catch up in person, uh, especially after this past weekend. I uh, competed against a non-human being for a cocktail competition. And, That's right. Uh, you, you, you fought the robots. I did. I fought the robots. And the robots beat me. I did not make it out of the first round. Uh, neither did 75% of my other human competitors. But... A single brave human made it to the final round against the AI, and I'm happy to report to all of our human listeners that we won. Uh, So that's good. Yeah, we're not we're not obsolete yet. In fact, when the results were announced, the entire bar started chanting "humans, humans, humans." (laughs) So there you go. Um, Massive shout out to the winner, who I'm so sorry, uh, your name is on the tip of my tongue right now, and I'm sure it'll come to me as soon as I'm done recording the show. But I met you. You're great. Uh, Keep on rocking in a free world. Thank you to Rob and Greg and Ariana and Ray and everybody else that was in Asia and everybody else was a part of that night. Um, It was super fun. Uh, If you're in the general Raleigh area, check out Annie Betty's Gin and Absinthe House and uh ask if they still have any robo design cocktails on the menu they might yeah i think uh, i mean it's i'm glad to hear that the humans won but it seems like it was a slim margin so i'm curious to see what happens next year <laughs> as yeah. the as the you know as the ai gets smarter and you know learns even more has has a year more of arsenal behind it 
Um, but I think that there's one arena where, you know, robots will hopefully never win. And that's in, you know, literal physical taste and flavor. Um, and I think that maybe drives us towards our guest today, right? Absolutely, it does. So joining us in the studio today, uh, I'm really, really excited to welcome uh, whiskey blender Ebony Major. Thank you so, so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, you're you're down in uh, Alabama right now, right? Yes, I moved back to Birmingham, Alabama in 2020. And that's your hometown. That's where you're from. I lived in Birmingham for a short time. Uh, I, I grew up not far away, a town you've probably heard of, Panama City Beach, Florida, not a town I'm proud of. <laughs> um, and uh, I, I left there pretty hastily when I was 17, just after high school ended. And I was driving north to live in Chicago, and my van broke down in Birmingham, Alabama. So I lived there for six months. <laughs> <laughs> Were you in the van the entire six months? No, no, I got a, I got an apartment and everything. Uh, I was in uh, the Hi Highlands area. I the worked, Highlands, I yeah. At the Western supermarket there. <laughs> Oh, yeah. They just shut that down maybe two, three years ago. And they're, of course, putting apartments. Yeah. And then I got my van fixed and I kept on cruising up to Chicago. Um, but I loved it there. Um, and I still have a bunch of friends there and I visit back as often as I can. Um, so uh, glad to have you on from from Birmingham. It sends me back to my, my youth. I was 17 years old living in Birmingham. <laughs> Uh, but let's talk about you. What got you into whiskey? Because I don't think you have the straightest trail on how you got to where you are today. No, I don't think any of us do, but let's let's hear some about yours. Yeah, so um, what well, got me to whiskey? Chance. Uh, <laughs> I So I'm from Birmingham, Alabama, and I, after leaving high school, went to study food science, food science and chemistry. Um, I love all things food, um, ingredients, uh, consumers, consumer acceptability. It kind of just is what makes me go. So I got my BS in food science and chemistry. And shortly after that, gonna admit it now, my GPA was not good enough. <laughs> so I was like, I'm just going to stay and do grad school. I had, you know, probably the same college experience as everybody else has sometimes where, you know, you're failing classes or whatever. So I felt like grad school was my fresh start. I had completed a semester with a 4.0. But I was like, do I really want to be in school or do I want to figure out? Because when you're in school as a food scientist, a lot of us stay in research and just really focus on health and nutrition, but I wanted to see what corporate world, as we call it, as a food scientist is like. So I went out to Oregon to um, work for Diamond Foods at the time. So at the time they owned Emerald, Snack Nuts, Pop Secret Popcorn, Kettle Chips. So I was in Oregon doing a summer internship um, in food safety and quality and wanted to get closer to home to my grandmother. Um, so, like, I know in the industry and even at my time at Diageo, a lot of the push was like, oh, you're supposed to want to have wanted to be in whiskey your whole life. I have not wanted to be in whiskey my whole life. <laughs> yes. I do not want to be in whiskey my whole life. I'll say that now. <laughs> so, no, I literally wanted to be closer to home. And I was on Indeed.com and I found this blending internship and I was like holy crap this sounds fun this sounds interesting did all the research into the company and that led me to Louisville Kentucky which is only a five-hour drive from from Birmingham so I started uh I was actually after that internship in Oregon I was supposed to go back and finish my degree which I did not do but I am doing right now uh it's funny how things come back full circle sure but um so I went to Kentucky on a one-year um, contract, so one-year blending internship. They had just sent down Andrew Mackay from um, Crown and Montreal, Canada to the U.S. Bullet was about to start building their own distillery. So it came in at the perfect time if you really wanted to know distillation, blending, and everything. And I kind of just stayed in it from, from there, so... That's how I got started. Now I'm trying to figure out the exit strategy, <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> but yeah. I mean, are you a whiskey enthusiast in your in your free time, or is this just it's all about the business? And and I can completely understand if if that's the truth. You know, I I I, I talk I talk about uh with pretty can 
uh, pretty candidly how I, I feel like I'm good at my job. I feel like my job pays my bills, but I don't love it, right? I love sailing. But if I had to go sailing every day to pay my bills, I probably wouldn't love sailing, right? Now, now I'll be honest, you know, my experience as a black woman has made me not enjoy my job. And I would mm. just be completely candid, even as a consultant, having to negotiate rates or lower rates that I know I shouldn't compare to other, you know, consultants. So I think my specific experience as a Black woman has made me not enjoy it as much because, for being honest, this industry is not ready to be honest about what it's like to be a... I mean, yes, we've given women a platform, but we really have ignored African-Americans in this industry. So... I think if I had just a swell or fair experience across the board, I might feel a little different about it. But I love the community. I love, you know, when I was in Blending and didn't really enjoy the job at Diageo or the actual distillery, that's what made me say, hey, I'll go to California and talk to bartenders. I'll go to New York and talk to bartenders. For me, it was get me out of like the closed-minded space and get me to the actual consumers. So um, I think it's the consumers and the community around whiskey that really drive me to stay in it because whether I'm consuming or not, I'm going to go to a bar and pop up and do my emails or do my homework because of the community around it and the flavor components. I think as a food scientist, I'll always love flavor composition and whiskey in general, um, it's just taxing to work in this industry. I'll just say that it's very taxing. Well, sure. I mean, we've talked about this numerous times on the show, how uh, first being a woman, uh, specifically strangely in whiskey, right? Like I don't think women have as difficult a time in tequila or gin, let's say, but for some reason, whiskey is a stodgy old man situation. Uh, and then, yeah, definitely being black, uh, I'm sure has a, a second level hur hurdles. Um, yeah. And, uh, um, you know, and we, we know you had some some difficulties with exiting uh, Diageo <clears throat> uh, that that weren't pretty. Um, do you think that your that your experience will help move the needle at all? Do you feel at least some sense of like it's been a trial and a tribulation, but but at least maybe the needle's going to move a bit? You know, I try to remain positive um, and thinking that it's unfortunate that. You know, it's 2024 and Diageo and I still have not settled my case. Um, you know, they're upset about an amount <laughs> of money that they felt was fair that I still don't feel was fair because I was doing a lot of work and not making the fair amount. Uh, they are not happy that I told my story at the New York Times. So part of me wants to say... Hmm, it hasn't moved a needle, but I've also gotten feedback that, because I don't know, honestly, I can speak today, it's February 9th, I don't know how this case is going to end. Um, the legal system, just Diageo and money, like, I just don't know how it's going to end. I've told my lawyer plenty of times, I still feel like I can walk away with nothing, and I'm, the reason I turn my what I was offered down and to be able to tell the story is to be able to try to move that needle. I'm from Birmingham and I think growing up in such a civil rights area just really ingrained in me, taught me to think about people other than myself. So I say that to say um, my lawyer sat at the U.S. Open one day and sat next to an ex-Diageo person that wanted to share with me that me making that step and making that um, <laughs> brave. <laughs> there was a lot of scary, crying, sure. worried nights um, that it changed how they did some things internally. There were some internal interviews about, um, you know, the I guess the culture, um, people were heard. So whether they want to publicly admit, because none of what I'm bringing up in my case is like being disputed. Right. <laughs> All of it happened. <laughs> Everything is factual. Um, so I, I'm, I'm disappointed and upset. I'm not going to lie and upset that they haven't settled my case um, as swiftly as they've been able to move on other things. And knowing that as a black woman, even this speaking with you guys, because I've turned down tons of articles like Bloomberg was about to fly to speak with me. But the fear that I get 
about speaking my truth and how that might impact my case. I'm beyond that. I've since <laughs> last yeah. month had a therapy session that I'm like, I'm beyond that. She's like, you got to say what you got to say. Um, but I hope it has changed. I will say it hasn't brought positive change for myself, but at the end of the night, I'm hoping it has. And I've received a lot of messages on LinkedIn from people who work either there or at other big name companies sharing how much they appreciate me being willing to do that article. So I, that's what helps me sleep at night despite still fighting this legal case is that by me doing uh, what, I, <laughs> what I was threatened not to, that I shouldn't be doing or however I should be saying that. But yeah, um, that has brought some change for other people or other people feel more seen or more comfortable um, stating some things. I have to assume that, you know, maybe maybe it's not making as visible or quickly visible an impact higher up. You mentioned earlier the community that is the bar world. You know, uh, I think we're all kind of in your corner. And, if you know, uh, you know, it, it's it, at that point, it sort of starts to become a, a numbers game. You know, you've got more people that are in your corner than aren't. Uh, so yeah. things, will, things will hopefully continue to change and, and improve for, for women and, and black people in, in our community. And, uh, you know, uh, we continue to build those longer tables and invite people to sit at them. So, uh, you know, uh, I, uh, I'm happy that you're, that, that you're out there and that you're, you're making some noise, but let's get back to whiskey. Um, so what are you up to these days? Uh, and like, what is, uh, what is, what is, what does life look like for, uh, you know, a, a, a blender? Yeah. Um, what am I up to now, babe? So I, I earlier talked to you about school. So I ironically went, I was invited to be the keynote speaker for a freshman convocation this past August. And uh, Alabama a and was like, hey, you should come back and finish that degree. <laughs> so <laughs> right now I am a delusional blender slash graduate student. <laughs> um <laughs> learning all the things about flavors and pigments. So um, it has been a balancing act. I'm not taking on as much like tasting or project work that I want to, but I'm able to focus on this um, one growing brand um, that I'm excited about and able to work with them because I'm able to just focus on the liquid. Um, it's Fortune's Full. It's a new brand out of Indiana. Um, it's distributed online right now. So direct to consumer, because as we know, like direct to consumer is kind of the gateway to new consumers right now um, to be able to leverage the new social media platform. So they're available there. But this couple has been buying distillate. Um, so they are not buying source liquid. Um they are buying distillate that they kind of figured out their own mash fill. So in October, we released a 62% rye. I'm um, at about 32 months. This new one will be a full three years. Um, so with this team, I work through analyzing their barrels, kind of creating an innovation pipeline. And when I say that, it's really identifying what barrels are good to use now, um, tracking and understanding the changes in the barrels. I mean, this time around, when we, um, I said we, when I did sensory, I saw a lot of creamy notes that I didn't see six to nine months. So six to nine months ago in these same samples. So it's really about like just the ongoing sensory, tracking the liquid, um, understanding the, the the brand's growth plan, you know, how fast they want to accelerate, what that means for liquid, how we release the liquid. Um, and right now I'm working on batch number two. So I think this one was the prelude and the next one, is it the overture? What is the next? I don't, it's after Romeo and Juliet. So uh, it's, it's their cute story. Um, but yeah, that's what I'm working on. So, but my typical day is, like the last month and a half, because I'm in deep blend delivery, is just sensory. Um, so pouring samples, I don't look at a lot of samples per day like I used to. So I might do 15 to 20 max. I'm taking notes. Um, I might look at a sample two to three times each just to make sure the notes are right. And then I go through and I'm grouping them. 
and um, doing all my Excel calculations to see, you know, which of the, the 60 I want to combine. We're up to formulas seven right now. So I've presented seven formulas so far. We still have not chosen one. So I just go back to the drawing board and try a different combination of arrows because, um, which I love what I do, which will probably keep me in it is because it's so, uh, it's a myth still. People don't really understand what blending is, what mm -hmm. I do, but it's fun to present seven formulas to a client and they don't know how I got there, but they know that there's a difference between one and two, two and seven, five and six. So um, that's what I do. Yeah. How, I mean, whiskey is such a long game because it has to rest and, and, and age. How does one acquire these skills at such a young age as yourself to be able to, you know, examine these things and, and then forecast it? You know, you're talking about what changed in the, in the, the, the creaminess that appeared uh, over a nine month period, but what, but how do you know then to forecast what's going to happen next? Like, where do you acquire those skills? So how I learned blending was a lot of sampling. I was eager when I was there. And I also, um, what I loved, <laughs> what I really loved about working for Diageo is that there were so many distilleries. Mm -hmm. um, whereas if I were maybe with another company, we might have had one, um, let's just say Bean, we had that one distillery. But when I was working with Diageo, we, I was working on Dickel, so I got to see Tennessee whiskey. I got to work with MGP for our Bullet Rye. Um, I got to work with whatever contract parties we worked with in Kentucky, as well as starting up Shelbyville. So over the course of my career, I was able to understand the difference in a farmer's grain, the difference in a yeast strain, uh, difference in dry versus liquid yeast. Um, I got to see the difference in the distillery character. So each distillery has its own character. And I got to see everything they had in their inventory. I got to see old, uh, you know, we'll call it old Four Roses stuff, old whatever. I got to see a lot of different, I don't say that to call them out. I say that's for people to really understand that I was able to see young, so distillate and matric from different distilleries um, over a five-year period. And I really think that the combination and the encyclopedia that I've created in my, in my head of knowing, okay, this is what a 21% rye at this distillery with this mash bill would typically look like. This is what a 36 would look like. This is what a 95 would look like. This is what a 51. So really understanding that and creating kind of your own mental library of what to look for. Um, part of my fun job while I was there, I love being a scientist, being there and trying to create that connection. Okay. Because as a blender um, earlier, I think we talked a little bit about like distilling versus blending. And I love that conversation because it's the great debate. We're, we're going to get back and to <laughs> And of course, I have my reasons for thinking that blending is like, I won't say is we touch liquid from beginning to end. We're the only ones, to, you know, the distiller wants this in the barrel. They're kind of just, you know, done with it. Um, but there's a lot of work that's put into as a blender, you're smelling distillate before it goes in the barrel. So um, one of my projects was trying to see, OK, if it's a distillate um, quality four or distillate quality three, what is that more than likely to become in four years? There is not a linear, like there's not a one-to-one -one because you have difference in barrels. So also at my time there, I was able to see um, barrels being sourced from different cooperages, which brings on a completely different, it's a whole nother fun thing. Um, but there's just, I'm sorry, I can go down a rabbit hole, but yeah, no, there's uh, differences. I, I, love I love it too. And it just seems that you were, you know, you were exposed to such a massive catalog. You were just in the right place at the right time to, to have exactly. so much at your fingertips. Uh, and you have, a, a you know, a, a obviously a pretty exploratory um, nature and you just, you, you, you know, you dove in um, and it's obviously paying off for you. You're, you're, you're excelling in this field, which is, uh, I think Greg wanted to talk about uh, uh, what you just brought up sort of uh, single barrel and just distillate versus, versus blending. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, I'm, I've am i really watched this whole field. By the way, I just have to ask, you stopped yourself when you were saying the difference between uh, uh, blending and distilling. And you, you were about to say, like, blending is, was the word on the tip of your tongue better? Because you could say, we love hot takes on the speakeasy. It's yeah. fine. You could come out and be honest about that. Blending is superior because I've had, I've literally had distillers kind of take this once it's in the barrel, it is what it is attitude, you know, Mm -hmm. like I've done my job and yes, you have done your job, but the barrel is also going to come in and do its job and we don't know. Exactly. There's so many things, right? So this concept of going straight from barrel to bottle might sound great to consumers, but I've seen a lot of bad barrels and I just would hate for a bad barrel to slip in, not only a blend. I've seen a blend, you put in a specific barrel, maybe you change the percentage five to percent, it'll change how your entire liquid taste because that one slightly earthy barrel and earthy is a note that we look for if it's soil if it's you know like fresh ground earth or basement immediate reject because that's something that's not going to age out in wood that's why we're looking at liquid from a distillate level we're also looking to see if the distillate is just grainy grain and wood are probably just going to give me grain and wood at the end of the day. So when we're looking for distillate, we're looking for fruit, we're looking for cleanliness, we're looking for all the things that are telling us that this is going to turn into some potentially great matric three to four years down the line. So the distiller does a really great job. We could not have great whiskey without the distiller. I just think that we don't give the blenders that are holding hands with the distiller as they distill. Um, Because that was what our kind of role is, is not just here's the liquid, we're helping create the maturation plans. We're helping create the mash fills, you know, um, figuring out the sourcing. Um, When you're looking at blending, so here's an example as to why blenders and distillers hold hands. (laughs) When you're a blender and you want to create a product four years down the line, you don't want your distiller to make all your rye January to June and then come make your bourbon July to December. You know why? It's because it's a very seasonal thing. You want to be able to split that rye and that bourbon between those six months in January and June. So maybe three months here, three months there and do that throughout the year. That doesn't really happen if you're not working hand in hand with your blender, which is the person that's forecasting and planning and figuring out and reserving barrels for different products in the future. So yeah, that's my take. Hearst Ranch, in collaboration with Whole Foods Market, is proud to be the presenting sponsor of The Farm Report, a special HRN series in collaboration with the National Young Farmers Coalition. Tune in each week to hear from farmers, policymakers, organizers, and food advocates about all the ways the Farm Bill directly impacts our lives, whether we realize it or not. They'll break down farm policy and talk to young farmers about what hangs in the balance for them as another Farm Bill gets made. Join the coalition to shift power and change policy for the next generation of growers and land stewards. The future of good food depends on it. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org or wherever you listen to podcasts. The world is changing faster than ever, and you need a website to go with it. Whether you're a seasoned pro looking to build your following or just starting out with a brand new idea, you need a landing page that's bold, innovative, and uniquely yours. Whatever your passion, you need a web designer with experience, panache, and heart. We can't help you with any of that. Hi, I'm Lou Bank. And I'm Greg Benson. Are we Silicon Valley tech visionaries? No, we're podcast hosts. And that's basically the same thing. And we're here to tell you about Ancestral Agave Syrup. Ancestral Agave Syrup is the 100% pure nectar of the agave plant. Now, wait a minute, you're thinking. I've had 100% pure agave nectar. Well, not like this you haven't. That stuff is processed with a diffuser, which introduces acid. Plus, it comes from Blue Weber, a monoculture that dominates farms, depletes the soil, and won't help you grow your brand or expand your e-commerce functionality. 
Ancestral agave syrup, on the other hand, is made by slowly cooking down the pure agua miel from Salmiana agaves in Hidalgo and Tlaxcala, two states that have been harvesting those plants for generations. It also won't expand your e-commerce functionality, but it will grow your brand if your brand is person who makes kick-ass margaritas or pecan pies or pancakes. Unfortunately, the families behind this tasty stuff are being offered big beer company bucks to rip out their agave and plant barley instead which would be a crime because ancestral agave syrup is about as far from the processed stuff as 100% pure Vermont maple syrup is from that sticky bottle at a diner. So don't build a homepage from one of several easy to use templates, but do grab ancestral agave syrup today. Our first 25 customers will also receive a special limited edition agave superhero comic book. So do not wait, protect the land, Make better drinks and save the bats by grabbing some today. Go to... Wait, what was that about bats? Uh, yeah, it's an important food source on the migration path of the Mexican long-nosed bat. Huh. Yeah, the flowering stalks of the agave also provide protection from predators. Oh, that's cool. Should we get back to the ad now? Yeah, let's do that. Go to AncestralAgave.com or click the link in the show notes to grab some today. Ancestral Agave Syrup. It won't help you build a beautiful website, but it will make your cocktails taste really, really good. I would love to talk a little bit about how the sort of public consciousness of, of what you do and of the the massive impact and the the technical skill and the nuance and like the skill set that you have to develop. I'd love to talk a little bit about how sort of the public perception of that has evolved over the last 10 years, because, you know, in the 2010s, we saw this massive, massive explosion of small batch distilleries in, in the United States. I mean, it was, it was nuts. Like there was, I mean, there were a lot of like macroeconomic forces that contributed to that. Like interest rates were really low. Free money was everywhere. People liked investing in like whiskey distilleries were cool. But, you know, you would go to these places that would be a year old and they would be like, here's our three-year whiskey. And you'd be sitting there like, this do this doesn't add up. And there were people that were – there was a spectrum of how honest places were willing to be about this. Uh, I was saying earlier I have a lot of respect for High West because they were always very open about the fact that like we – this is a blend and we really feel that like the craft of doing this – put us in a place where we can say, we made this whiskey. And I agree mm -hmm. with them. And then there were other places that may or may not have been making a recipe that was developed by Al Capone that got sued because they were so misleading about the way their, their whiskey was made of where it came from. But I want to sort of ask how you feel your work has been perceived. And also if you feel like there's still, because yeah. like, the thing that bothers me about that, knowing more about whiskey blending, is that there was this, effort by a lot of places to hide that art. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And when it is so much a part of making whiskeys that have been around for, you know, centuries, like Scotch whiskey makers blend that shit. Um, yep. You know, how, how do you feel about the way that your work is perceived and talked about in the, in the overall community? I think a lot of it is driven from marketing. So, yeah. you know, my, while I was in my role, I wanted to get more into marketing to be able to tell the true narrative. Like they would want to send me out on events and send me like potential talking notes or decks. And I'm like, yeah, no, this is how you can, <laughs> this is how you can say it. This is how you can make it real. No, we're not sourcing. We are working with like, I think a lot of it took me getting out and talking about what, third-party contract that we really started to really unravel what that was. No, we're not just because there are current brands. And as a consultant, I am usually trying to pitch my services. There are still people who are willing to buy liquid and just blend. Uh, you can't see me, but I'm air quoting and blend. <laughs> we can hear the air um, quotes. It's okay. <laughs> but they just buy barrels and call it blending themselves instead of actually. And I think that is extremely, I, I won't say dangerous for your brand, but buying liquid on an open market and not having a professional taste the barrels individually to get 
a true understanding of what you're buying and you're potentially bottling, I think is 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 not a good place to be for a consumer because the consumer is looking for consistency. They're looking to know that what they buy today is going to taste the same if they come back in six months, nine, a year. Yeah, it just seems it just seems short sighted. It seems like um, a cash grab uh, in those situations where people are just buying uh, free market liquid and slapping yeah. a label on it and and sending it out to the consumer as a new to the market product. That that you know, sure you've got a chance that it's going to be. Frankly, maybe there's a chance it's going to be outstanding. But it seems like more chances that it's going to be just okay, and 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 kind of even more chances it's going to be mediocre or less, right? Yeah. So my question is always to these brands: Why should they buy it? Right. Why, why should a consumer buy it? Because you put a cool label and a cool story. You have to give them more. I, in my personal opinion, you have to give them more. You have to. I'm not gonna buy something. I mean, I might. The girl in me might just see a ooh, it's the it's the pretty label. Let me buy well, this. I mean, marketing is a hell of a drug. I think. Yeah. Um, you know, it gets people uh, to to do and purchase goofy things. Um, I, I just think that I hope anyway that even listening to you talk, our our, our audience is hearing that, uh, you know, I don't want to put put down anybody, but like it seems to me that the dis, dis, distiller certainly, obviously, an important part of this puzzle, but it kind of has the the lower lift job. Just needs to make sure that the grains are of good quality. Needs to make sure that the yeast is pitched at the right time, etc., and and make the make the liquid. The harder job is the is the the blending. It's almost like a, I don't know. I can take a photograph and cut it into a bunch of pieces and then tear, tear it apart. Uh, that I've I've made a puzzle. That's great. Uh, now you have to put the puzzle together, right? So that's a little bit harder. I yeah, and I, I one don't want to get canceled because there's so many, <laughs> so many. You don't have a job if there's not a distiller. Uh, I know. I, just, I feel like I feel like you know it, there's you know plenty of craft involved in the distillery. Yeah. I think for a while we've wanted the the distiller to be like the head, the face of the brand, the the person that is sure. just seen as that. Guitarist, yeah, like, right out front, you know. And we get that. I think it's just it's equally important to really discuss the people who have a hand in that end product. Unless you're telling me that your distiller, and which is also something that I've seen that is extremely dangerous. Yeah. Why do I keep using the word dangerous? People using the word distiller and blender interchangeably. There's some people yeah. who are, call themselves distiller slash blender. It's kind of a conflict of interest because I've pissed some distillers off before by telling them that their liquid that they might think is a quality four is actually like a quality two, in my opinion. So right. um, it's kind of hard to have to be able to be in both positions as the distiller and the blender because you're really giving them feedback. Like I said, you're holding hands. That's got to be valuable information for them, right? To hear you say, look, you thought you had this this level of quality. I'm telling you, you don't. And I'm I'm sort of the expert in this part of the arena. But here's how I can help you, right? Yeah. It, it yeah. comes with, it comes with a, there's more, there's more to the story. The story isn't over here, but here's how we can help fix it. We can use these barrels and blend them. And, uh, you know, like that's where the, the real challenge seems to raise its head up. Seems like the problem is that there might be some fragile egos out there. <laughs> oh, oh, we didn't do. Do we not bring up the fragile egos? Yeah, they're out there. <laughs> I can just see this going <laughs> so so wrong. <laughs> because I love distillers, I really do. It's just like I think the marketing guys have just made it like they created it what they want it to be, and exactly. it's not like a distiller versus blender. It's like this. These are the makers of our liquid. Like these well, are the makers in total of our yeah i think it's you know it's as with everything uh, it's not just marketing but i think everything we, we try and romanticize everything right we try and make these uh, grand illusions and you know uh it's very romantic to think that like there's one person who's like got their finger on the button and they're uh you know they're producing this product sort of single-handedly and they tromp around the country and the world uh, you know, talking about it, which means that they're not back at the, at the button. <laughs> Actually right? doing the work. I always say that, oh, this is another thing that's going to get me canceled. <laughs> oh, all these uh, blenders or people, distillers that you see on these constant tours are not blending if they're on constant marketing tours. Right. Yeah. You know, there's, there's work to be done. Somebody's got to be back at the helm of the ship. Well, especially too, because that seems like such an individualized thing. I mean, like I, I say, 
a lot of times, like I, I always tell this every time I'm teaching a class, when I ask people like what they think of something that we've just made, I'm like, when I say, I'm like, I'm only going to be serious one time in this class. And that's now when I say that there literally is no wrong answer when I ask people what they think of something. Like, I think our job is interesting because taste is subjective and mm -hmm. one person's yuck might be somebody else's yum. I think that's mm -hmm. what makes this world of food and drinks not boring. But also that means that, you know, there's not, it's not like you can give someone a spreadsheet and be like, all right, I'm going on vacation. You take over this. Like they're going to make different stuff than you are, you know? Yeah. I mean, well, blending is a spreadsheet. I will say that, but they are going to make different things. Oh, right? don't get me wrong. I love, to, I don't want to get canceled <laughs> by the spreadsheet community. I love a good spreadsheet, but like. <laughs> That's one thing I had no idea I was getting myself into. I don't like math. Blending is all math. Like you're literally starting out with my barrel has how many LPAs? Okay. It's how old? Okay. That means I've lost what percent? angel share per year. Okay. That means I have how much left It's literally all math. And then right. it's a little bit of taste. So, oh, it's, it's so fun. I think that's what keeps me in it too. It's like, it's really challenging. It's like, how do I do this? I'm, I blow my mind somehow. It's like, cause I get to this Excel sheet every time and I'm like, where do we start? How do we do this? Cause it's just so many, like just knowing the calculations or, you know, how many bottles are in a case and what, how many LPAs you'll get per case based on your final proof. It's just magical. It's fun okay. though. I like to zone out and do it with music. That's really freaking, because I, I did not know that. No one's, I'd never heard that about the active blending. And that that almost seems like like you're hacking the matrix, basically. It's like you figured <laughs> out these formulas that will tell you, I mean, obviously, you know, it's, there's a, a lot of variables in here, but if you can control for them, you can basically predict this is what this is going to taste like in a year, two years, five years. And that's. Yeah. Wild. That's, that's, that's what my job was. And that's what I say, like you're working. That's why you're working hand in hand with the distiller because as you created a blend. So let's say uh, one of the things I was working on was Harper. Harper. Um, I have the archive formulas, you know, I would know what those components were year after year. And that's the fun part. You might open a sheet and think you can just plug in and plug in a year for year. Oh, it was 2000. We used fiscal 2009 last year. We're just going to use to fiscal uh, 2010 this year. Those tastes might complete, be completely different. So instead of going 2009, 2010, you might be jumping 2011. And because that 2011 might be young, you might need to go in and put a little bit of 2008 to balance those flavors out. But how is that going to impact your cost? Because the barrel cost of 2008, 2009, 2010, 2011 all have different barrel costs because they were all made in a different year. So when I'm still presenting that formula to the brand, not only does it have to taste right, it has to be about the same cost as it was. So it's a lot of like cracking the code. Yeah, it's fun. <laughs> it's fun. Sorry. That is that is nuts. And that also, I mean, that very much appeals to like the OCD part of my brain. But man, not that me. is like, yeah, I don't think I could do that job. <laughs> that is beyond anything I want to deal with. I want to deal. I want to be the guy at the end of the trail who gets to taste it and say, this is delicious. Um, I don't want to have to look at any of those spreadsheets and stuff. Speaking of delicious, though, you had a hand in the production and blending of uh, uh, the George Dickel Bottled and Bond in 2019, which was the number one whiskey of the year, right? Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. That's quite an accolade. Um, and uh, and uh, we know Nicole Austin over there. Was she there when you were yeah. there? She was, you know, it was, uh, she came in, I can't remember what year she came in, but um, when she came in as distiller general manager, she had um, some innovation plans for, for Dickel. And again, part of my job was um, if you want to innovate and create new products, we have to make sure that that's not impacting Dickel 8, Dickel 12, sure. um, Dickel single barrel select. So um, your, your regular consumers who who've been drinking that that juice for you know literally decades, so they you can't you can't come in and innovate them out of the circle, right? Absolutely. So you know it's a lot of taboo about uh, the blending of Dickel, but how this kind of occurred was Nicole, Nicole came in, wanted to innovate and let us know she wanted to create a create a bottle of bun. So 
From there, um, I went in and had to go through the inventory, go through those old archives, go through those spreadsheets. Not only did I have to look at like what the current formula was using, but maybe two, three years out to see, Mm -hmm. to make sure we weren't going to be impacted by anything. Um, Once I had narrowed down, here here are the lots you can use. She went through, um, chose out some lots, presented some things that were good, um, but we had to do a bit of reworking. So there were some barrels, uh, one in particular, it's like 2G, which is a grainy. So really just reworking that formula, formula to make sure that, hey, we might not want to put a 2G out on the market. So that's kind of how we worked hand in hand is I am kind of the guardian of the inventory um, with Dickel, submit the formula, and then at the end of the day, the blending team is the one that's kind of creating the formula, putting it in the the system and telling the the distillers, not the distillers, the the warehouse team, um, what to pull from. But that was a fun project. I mean, Bottled and Bond is cool. Bottled and Bond is a one season, one distiller. You know, Bottled and Bond is when I was talking about earlier, why you want to work hand in hand with your distillers, especially if you need multiple mash fills. Dickel is a pretty easy product because they only create one mash fill versus like our bullet bourbon, we were creating 10. So um, it was pretty easy where you don't make an impact. But if you're working with a brand where you want to make multiple mash fills, doing a bottle and bond um, might be a little bit harder Um, or you just look at your inventory a little bit different. But a bottle and bond, while it's an innovation, it's, it's simply just same season, um, same distiller at certain ABV. Um, so that one mash bill. Yeah. I mean, and it's incredible juice. I, I, I'm, a, I'm a longtime fan of Dickel. Um, I think that was uh, one of the first whiskeys I drank as a, as a young, uh, a young man. Um, you know, what's interesting about my job is like, I have to put my preference aside and mm-hmm. Dickel was one of the hardest things for me to blend because I didn't like the flavor. Um, <laughs> Because uh, fascinating to bring up, I hadn't even considered that. You you do have to set your preferences aside um, when you're when you're when you're in that position. You know, I I'm a, I sit on the judging panel for LA Spirits and for um, uh, New Orleans Spirits competitions. And yeah, like I, there's a part of the tasting panel where you're you're just grading it on quality, not whether you like it or not. Mm-hmm. So when I first got my assignment, I think like I took a blend my first nine months there because it was Andrew. He was handling the whole U.S. portfolio. So uh, while publicly I did a lot of like work on Bullet, we were doing all U.S. whiskey. So the Dickles, the Harpers, Bullet. So we were working on that. I forgot what we were talking about that quick. Um, what were we talking Just about? having to set aside your preference. Uh, yes. For- so when I got Dickle, sorry, when I got Dickle, I was like, ooh, this is weird. And Dickle has a certain character. And mm-hmm. Andrew was like, Ebony, you cannot change that. That's what they're looking for. Right. So it was like, okay, Ebony, you need to learn to like Flintstone vitamins. Because <laughs> 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 that's the flavor that I had to blend for. Mm-hmm. If it, I would present the first two vitamins, I thought I knew what I was doing. I think he's like, yeah, no, it's not vitamin enough. It's not vitamin enough. It's not what is literally not what we're looking for. And that was my, okay. Each liquid has a profile. It has a standard. And that is what you're blending to. It's not your personal preference, which made me kind of a rebel, which made um, me creating or being the one responsible for finding the barrels and and creating the bullet single barrel program was extremely fun because it was completely opposite of what I had to do. It wasn't creating the liquid to stay the same. It was... Everybody knows that we're kind of a source brand. How do we offer them a unique single barrel experience? How do we pull apart these 10 pieces and offer single barrels? So that was completely different. And then when I created a Bullet Blender Select, that was completely different. It was literally me. I had, um, so we have an inventory code and you you kind of know, the, there's about 50 different codes um, and you know a code if it's kind of used. And this one was 3X. And 3X isn't like a commonly used code because it's slightly different. It's flavorful. 
And so my mind had gone through. So every year you start a blend by going through all the samples, the lineup. Even if it says 3X and you don't think you're going to use it, you still got to smell it to see. And I had seen these barrels get passed up year after year. Like, okay, it might not fit this, but it can fit something. Um, and that's what made me come up with Blender Select. It was, hey, these pieces, like I told you earlier, whenever you want to innovate, you got to make sure it's not pulling out of your future plans. So that was me going through the inventory of some some nine, some 13-year-old bourbons that I found and creating something that did not have to match uh, anything on the market. And that was extremely fun. That yeah. is amazing. And I have to say, I haven't thought about Flintstones vitamins in about 30 years, but you're it's an extremely, I'm, I can picture it on my tongue now. It's an incredibly distinct taste and I'm not sure I'm ever going to be able to have pickle rye again without thinking about that. Okay. The rye might not have it as much. Okay. That's fair. Rye that's might fair. Not have but it yeah, but no, it I has also, a little bit, but yeah. Yeah. But no, I know exactly the flavor you're talking about. I was like, oh my, it totally, yeah. it totally tracks. Oh man. So, um, I'd love to ask what's what's next for you, and if people wanted to follow along with your exploits, where'd be a good spot for them to do that? Yeah, I don't ever know what's next. I kind of just like <laughs> go where the whiskey takes me. Right now, Where I'm really I? enjoying. You yeah, for me a few times. <laughs> Look, it might be. I'm finishing this degree. I'm right now. I'm gonna finish this master's. I'm focusing on beverage formulation because I I think my next pivot that I want to make is going to be in cannabis. I think I'm interested in some beverage formulation there. So I'm going to finish finish that up this summer um, while still doing my blending. I, you know, I told you I have a very important meeting to go to. <laughs> and um, so I'm working on this kind of like secret brick and mortar idea as well. So, Ooh, okay. um, yeah, I'm, I'm taking my time. I don't put time limits on myself because I like to do things very organically. But over the past couple of years, I've gone back and forth with the brand. If I wanted to do my own thing and, um, I want to do something, but I think a physical space is really a, a physical space to bring people together is really what I'm interested in. So I am working on that. But you can always keep up. I don't post hardly ever, but you can always keep up with me on Instagram at Major and Whiskey. But yeah, I'm I am planning to stay in this industry kind of in a way that feels good and looks like me. I'll just say that. All you right. know, yeah. Well, well, we'll look forward to seeing what, what comes next for you. Um, and I, I know you've got a meeting to get to, and we're, we're run, running close on time, so we're going to cut it off. Uh, but we really appreciate you taking time to talk to us about some fun stuff and, and, and a little bit of hard stuff as well. Uh, that's always welcome here on the show. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, thanks for thanks for you know enlightening us to what goes on in the, in the blending world, which I think is uh, often overlooked uh, for that rock star distiller gets the, the front page all the time. Um, uh, so, well, that, that's it for this episode of the Speakeasy. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, to check out heritageradionetwork.org for uh, plenty more shows just like this one. There's a beating heart on the website somewhere where you can donate to keep us on the air. Um, really had a great time talking to you, Ebony, uh, all the way from uh, Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, so uh, cheers, everybody. We'll see you next time. Cheers. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So you don't shun the devil with your rock. The Speakeasy is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food and drink radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe. It's